George Eliot's Middlemarch is a study of provincial English life in the early 19th century, but there's definitely more to this book than meets the eye. That is, if you can get all th through all 880 pages of it. Known as one of the great books of British literature, we're going to explore how Eliot tells us more about England than we think we realize, all the little stories of the little people from Middlemarch, and all the other crazy nonsense that goes on in this book. Welcome to Book Bosom, a literary podcast where we explore the content, context, and contemporary relevance of 17th to 19th century literature. I'm Hannah. I'm Michelle. I'm Grace. Episode two. Um, so this one's really exciting because this is going to be a two-part special for everyone that isn't aware that Middlemarch is literally an 880-page book. There was just no way that we were going to get this all into one episode. Um and this was my first time reading it and I have so many thoughts. Just lots of thoughts. Not necessarily all good thoughts, but lots of thoughts. Um, but Hannah, you also, again, like last time, you read this before, right? No, I hadn't. This is my first time reading this one. Oh, I thought you had. No. Also have lots of thoughts, just like random ones. Probably mostly superficial thoughts, but I have them. <laughs> <laughs> and Michelle, you also never read it. I have not. Nope, I've never read it before. I read uh, The Mill on the Floss, but I'd never read Middlemarch. And I have to say, um, Middlemarch, ooh, there's just a lot of people. I did read in the bio, right, that she's, it's like two books that were sandwiched, sandwiched together. So two stories of two different families, and then they got sandwiched together. Yeah. And then um, I'm a little bit jaded because I think Adam Bede is... Um, probably one of my favorite novels of all time yes, now probably completely in the top agree. 10 yeah and um where is her adam bead uh, he's just not in here and that made me really sad <laughs> well i guess will is meant to be adam bead that's debatable he's not as good right Agreed. the thing that i found reading middlemarch after oh my the only thing i'd read of george Eliot's before this was adam bead which is awful but after reading that which was her first novel to this I can see how she like developed as an author and the, the things that she was commenting on and the complexities of everyday life, how she really developed those ideas. But at the same time, I think she just went a little bit overboard. Like I preferred, yeah, I preferred the more simple story of Adam Bede than I did to this. 100% agree. But anyway, before we start talking about it, let's do a quick plot summary. If, well, if you can do a quick plot summary with this book. Um, so how to give it a go. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to try my best, okay? Um, so basically, Middlemarch follows the residents of people who live in the town called Middlemarch, um, leading up to Reform Acts of 1832. Mostly, I feel like the novel centers on Dorothea, who is this very pious and proper girl, but is also very driven, and she lives with her uncle and her sister, and obviously this is a Victorian novel, so we're like, who's getting married to whom? Like, how how is she going <laughs> to find a husband um and she has this like love interest like james chatham or whatever his last name is and he's like her age and attractive and kind of what everybody is like pushing her towards but she ends up marrying this like really old man who's a member of the clergy despite everybody's apprehensions about that you know kind of trying to dissuade her so she marries him and hopes that through her marriage she's going to be able to like have find some purpose in the world I suppose and like be, be able to help him with his career um so that's kind of Dorothea's storyline at the beginning anyway the novel also sort of follows Fred who is another man in this town in his courtship of Mary and Fred gets into some trouble there's like some bankruptcy problems that he falls into and Mary is like really pushing him off and saying like you have to get your life together before I can even entertain the idea of marrying you so that's kind of their storyline so demanding yes Mary <laughs> I love Mary she's kind of the best character in my opinion so that's kind of their storyline is Fred like trying to figure out how he's gonna better himself I guess to get Mary and then we also have this other storyline of Lydgate who's this new doctor in town he's got these newfangled ideas about um, medicine and how a doctor should be in like a town and obviously because he's new he has some resistance to that to the town people and he's also trying to he does um, end up marrying uh, what's her name Rosamond Rosamond yes and they have very different personalities very different views of how life should be 
So they have a marriage that's kind of rocky, to say the least. So yeah, in my opinion, we have those three main storylines that are going. We also have this character of Will Ladislaw, who comes in and kind of Fs up the marriage with Kazabund and Dorothea. He's like related to Kazabund. He's like the nephew, I believe, or cousin, or I don't know. Honestly, this book is ridiculous. But him and Dorothea kind of get this friendship blossoming, and then her husband is a bit bitter about it. Like, oh my God, so much is happening in this novel. Is that sufficient for a plot summary? (laughs) (laughs) Well, then the drama ensues. Like, I don't want to ruin the end of the novel just yet. We'll get there. We'll get get to the end of the novel and all the drama that happens afterwards. But yeah, it's long. It's so long. And there's even, like, you've, you've summarized the main three plot points and those probably take up maybe like 600 400 to 600 pages of the book and the rest of it is just in my opinion boring shite that I just (laughs) you're not wrong like these just oh it was just like chapter after chapter of like stupid town politics and like tedious tedious country babble It, it really lost me but anyway for some reason you can already tell where I'm going with this whole episode. For some reason, this book is called The Greatest Book in British Literature, which I'm on the fence about. However, I do think that Elliot deserves all the credit that she has been given. So um, I'll just do a very brief overview of her life, which is also equally crazy and very hard to narrow down to just a short summary as well. But basically, uh, George Elliot was born in 1819 in Warwickshire in the Midlands, which is also where Middlemarch is set. Her real name is obviously Mary Ann Evans. She died in 1880. So she was a novelist, an editor, a journalist, a poet, a critic. Her first novel, as we said, was Adam Bede, AKA our absolute favorite. Um, And that came out in 1859. And then Middlemarch was her second to last novel in 1872. Some interesting things about her life that have definitely shaped her writing. So awful but basically when she was a child her father who was a land manager so they weren't in poverty they were like kind of middle class but her father um didn't think that she was conventionally attractive so didn't think that she would marry and so invested in her education so she went to three different schools from the age of five to 16 and then continued to self-learn after that in like the mansion's library on the estate that her dad was looking after So that played into a lot of her novels talking about class systems and, you know, different characters transgressing class boundaries. But religion also, as we will discuss, plays like a massive role in her novels because she was raised Anglican in the Midlands during the rise of the religious dissenters, which were basically people that didn't believe in the convergence of religion and state and also kind of, I think, didn't believe in organised religion. Um, And then in her 30s, she became an editor for the Westminster Review, which was very unusual for a woman. There she was writing essays that people saw as um, educated, but not too opinionated, which is also another classic Elliot thing that we'll get into. Not very strong on her opinions there, although she did have some rather unusual um, political opinions, like she supported the Union when the American Revolution started. Um, She didn't necessarily support or disagree with women's suffrage, which is a whole other thing that we'll get into. And she also supposedly supported Irish independence, which was very unusual for like upper class people in Britain. She was a bit controversial. And then when she died in 1880, she wasn't allowed to be buried in Westminster Abbey because she didn't, she wasn't Christian. She hadn't, she had some weird religious, she changed her mind basically a lot of times. And obviously the Christian church was just like, no, you're not allowed to be buried here. So she was buried in the like section reserved for social outcasts with like Karl Marx and stuff in Highgate Cemetery so she's still in this like rejected section she's still there yeah she's still there bizarre anyway so not only was that decision made though because of her religious flipping flopping um but also her super controversial romantic relationships Hannah do you know a bit more about that I know a little bit about it because it plays into a bit about why she decided to publish anonymously right so she ends up falling in love with this married man. His name's what? George Henry Luz. He's married, has a bunch of kids with this woman, but they, they have a relationship despite 
despite this marriage. And it was like very open. People were well aware of the fact that she was engaged with this married man. So yeah, that's what I've, I've read about that. The other part that really got to me was when that when that relationship ended and I don't know whether he died or... I think he died. Yeah, they kind of got divorced. So yeah, anyway, okay, died. so he died. And then the year that she died, she remarried someone that was 20 years younger than her. Yes. Which also was like super controversial, like super spicy that she basically married a student. So yeah, she was full of controversy, which as you said, is why she was publishing anonymously, which I also think is something we need right. to talk about because a lot of people wouldn't know that George Elliot is not her real name. Right. So obviously her real name is Mary Ann Evans. But um, obviously there was a lot of different reasons for an author to choose to publish anonymously. It was very common in this time period. I was reading a lot about how there's a false assumption made that it's because they were women and somehow men were given more credit in their works. But obviously I don't think that's true because there was plenty of women novelists that were publishing with their name and were being very successful, Frances Burney being one of them. So um, a lot of it was for George Eliot, from what I've read, her trying to keep her writing away from her scandal and her like, quote unquote, fallen woman persona that people knew her for. Um, she thought if she used a different name, her work would be judged um, more freely um, without having that stigma attached to it. Also, she wrote anonymously when she worked for Westminster. All of that was usually anonymous or with a pseudonym attached to it so she didn't have like a quote-unquote literary persona to publish under anyway um that was attached to her name also adam bead was her first novel right was so super successful that she obviously published it under george Eliot as well but so many people were coming up and saying that they had wrote it so that everybody knew very quickly after adam bead came out that Marian Evans did in fact write it because she was like, you didn't, she was knocking down people oh. who were taking claim of her work essentially. So it wasn't a secret even then that she wrote that it was her as George Eliot. Right. But yeah, I think I read a lot too about how it was a strategic choice, obviously, because it gave her, her I mean, her name as a woman, your name changes, right? Like she was Marianne Evans and then she had a different spelling of Marianne Evans. And then she was Marianne. She took um, that man's last name, Hughes. And then she took, obviously the husband after that, their last name. So with all these name changes, it just made more sense to have a continuous string of publishing all of your works under one name. Agreed. I so. think though, this is also when we need to sort of talk about what, what it is that she does right. And so she's sort of, um, well, I mean, she is credited for creating realism. So because her life is so crazy and this is what's going on and she's really falling in love with somebody who's married and, and then she writes stories about people's lives who I'm thinking a little bit about Lydgate who follows the sort of actress who moves to Paris and he's like kind of following oh, after yes, her and just, you know, thing, just yeah. like he's like in love with her and, and that's sort of uh, really totally unorthodox for like this physician English physician to be like following after some but can you know... I also interject into this and say this is also classic of that time period in that literature and obviously my brain is that's the first thing I think is that it's always the foreign woman that is of ambiguous racial categorization that is crazy and a murderer oh, and you know so classic um yeah, classic colonial uh, themes there. But anyway, that's fine. We'll, we'll move past it, Karen. <laughs> the wild woman, the wild woman. Yeah. But anyway, so um, so it is. it does make sense that she's under George Eliot's very recognizable, her writing between Adam Bede and Middlemarch and, and Mo and the Floss, the whole thing, because she's writing about very real events. And the book um, is a very tedious sort of move in the country's English countryside. But that's really what was going on. Rather... Um, and she sort of, in her own criticism, makes um, sort of, well, she criticizes other female authors who've done that uh, or have done something other than that, which is everybody, all the, the, the beautiful girl um, marrying the Lord, like that whole thing. Um, she's like, that's not reality. That's only a small percentage of things. And what's really going on in the countryside? Life is really messy. People fall in love with people they're not supposed to fall in love with. People chase after um or murder their husbands and then other people chase after them when they move to Paris and become an actress there and then have a child, right? I mean, it's just like it, life is really messy and that's actually kind of 
what she shows us rather than it's all, you know, nice parties and everybody gets to go horseback riding in the forest with the nice lord who looks like mr darcy and like it's just (laughs) she doesn't write that um that's not her life and that's not what she writes i mean mr darcy what a waste of space i don't understand why he's been the the iconic man i'm much more reading this i i was so much more sympathetic with um will oh love and also when i was reading it i just pictured timothy chalamet as will the whole time which obviously made me love him (laughs) even more remake what a great cast Oh, new remake that would be oh. such a good casting right anyway they, they need to consult you what are they I thinking know, i need to get in touch with netflix um but <laughs> yeah so her writing had a lot of it was it was realist obviously because it wasn't meant to be fantastical or ridiculously romantic but it i liked it so much more because of that and it was the same feeling i had with adam b that there is but these these people are fundamentally flawed everyone has an issue everyone is selfish or vain or you know whatever's going on um self-righteous you know not very good qualities but I love them and there were so many moments in this book where I was reading it and I was like oh my gosh I I so relate to Dorothea or I know that feeling like she's really good at connecting in that way with people's emotions and real emotions and not making it a Mr. Darcy Darcy Pride and Prejudice-esque unrealistic situation and obviously that was her intention with the book Middlemarch is like the the pinnacle of that real that yeah the real the real romance I guess although it's not real let's be honest it's super unrealistic but and the beginning part I think um well not necessarily the beginning but when uh Dorothea and her um sorry the beginning like 400 pages in yeah like (laughs) Her, her old husband, right? And so she's so excited because he's writing and she's like excited that she's actually going to be like tapping into like her own knowledge and she's going to be able to do something to help him. And then they go to Rome and like the third day she's like, I'm all by myself. I'm the third day into my second day into maybe it's the first day into my honeymoon in Rome and my husband is going to be inside reading and writing and sends her out to go visit Rome and I'm like as you know as a married woman I'm like oh that is not gonna be good good not a good sign (laughs) she immediately regrets it I feel immediately regrets it the other thing I really thought about that relationship was how dysfunctional those two have got such distorted representations of what married life was meant to be like and I guess that's the whole thing so I think we should talk a little bit about the context of this book because I did a lot of research into um, what was going on in the world when this happened. Yeah, please do. I need that background information. Well, it's so interesting because there's these plots that we're talking about, like them having an unrealistic expectation of marriage, is she wrote that because she's influenced by scientists that are coming out at the time saying that, and male scientists, there's a, a whole big thing that I'll talk about more in the next episode when we focus a bit more on female relationships and, and feminism and stuff and women's suffrage. But um, a lot of scientists saying that women are biologically inferior in response to the rise in women's suffrage activism. And so the whole novel, obviously, Middlemarch is meant to be a study of provincial life, but she is making comments about gender roles the whole time, which is, again, something that we need to unpack. But what I found most interesting about it is that not only is it a study of provincial life and showing people impacted by their own dramas and however petty or large they may be but it's about everything else that's happening in Britain at that time that never these things never directly enter the novel but they're always on the periphery the whole time so like she talks about the industrial revolution she talks about the rise of the middle class the death of King George IV the dissolving of parliament the liberal reform bill as you said Hannah huge deal the women question the catholic question she talks about colonization like there's so much that's just sitting on the periphery and even though George Eliot herself was never that vocal or opinionated in terms of her thoughts on a lot of the issues going on in Britain at the time a lot of people think that Middlemarch was her answer to those issues because she's writing about this like socialist utopia where all of the characters especially at the start of the novel are so like preoccupied with these experiments for for all you know like Dorothea wants to create a little town to help people that are in poverty she then goes on to sort out a whole thing with a hospital um like they 
they all have intentions to better those around them but by the end of the novel all of those intentions fall away and they just live their little social marriage bubble lives anyway so that was very interesting I found that that there's all of these things that she's commenting on but not quite commenting on they're just you know sitting like disguised in the background I mean do you want me to talk more about the the liberal reform bill because that is a whole other thing can you like just a brief overview this is very ignorant <laughs> but i didn't know about this before like i you hear about the votes over the 1800s that changed the way that britons were allowed to vote for their parliament but i'd never actually researched it before and i think the biggest context of this book is the reform bill because it was going on from the plot of the book which is uh, 1829 to 1832 is when the book is set all the way through to when George Eliot died in 1880, the Liberal Reform Bill was the main political issue of that time period in the 19th century. So basically, the first one was passed in 1832. And at the end of the novel, they say that this bill has has gone through and this was like the change of Britain. This was going to change the face of Britain as they knew it. So what it did was with the mass um, mass urbanization from the Industrial Revolution, obviously a lot of people moving from the peripheries into the cities like Manchester, Birmingham, London, the Liberal Reform Bill was intended to restructure the constituencies um, because at that time, even though most people were now living in the cities, the suburbs or the, the countryside still had the majority of MPs, like the electoral votes, as you would call them. So, for example, like uh, Cornwall, which is, for those that don't know, countryside, South London, very rural, had 44 MPs at the same time that London had four. Like, that doesn't make any sense in in the early 1800s, right? So the reform bill was basically intending to just restructure the the constituents or constituencies so that there was equal representation and that the working class were more represented. So obviously it passes the House of Commons and then the House of Lords keep blocking the bill because they're all elite assholes and don't want it to pass. Classic. Um, Typical. Yeah, classic. Anyway, so it it eventually passes in 1832. And then there were two other bills um, that went through in 1867 and 1885 and they gave working class men the right to vote. So industrial workers and agricultural workers. And during this time, obviously because people are reconsidering their voting rights, women's suffrage starts coming up and starts becoming a really prominent issue about whether qualified, in brackets, qualified women should be allowed to vote. By qualified, I assume that they mean women that were educated or women that were from the gentry. I don't know, but... Married women. Right. Okay, probably. Yeah, married women. So that question starts to come up and... In that same time period, you've got people saying that women are biologically inferior and psychologically inferior and blah, 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 blah. And so a lot of critics think that Elliot was writing Middlemarch to combat that argument and put her kind of foot forward for women's suffrage because the women in the novel supposedly, which I'm also on the fence about, supposedly don't conform to this inferior idea of what women were in other novels at that time. But personal opinion, I think there's other novels that have a lot more strong, stronger female protagonists than Middlemarch. I don't think that the women in Middlemarch are particularly outrageous. I'd, I'd agree. I don't think they're outrageous at all. I think they're like, they're sort of just like regular women who are meaning like today, like we would be like uh, Mary who is unconcerned when men are supposedly always falling in love with her, she doesn't even really want to think about it. She's like, whatever, do your thing, right? She's got her own thing going on. Love Mary. But she doesn't really, she's not really, she's not outrageous. She's just sort of living her life. Same as Dorothea. I mean, you could argue kind of in um, Hannah's introduction that she's a little bit like Anna Nicole Smith. She's like targeting the older man who has money, but that's not really what she's doing. She's doing it because she wants to be able to use her intelligence which is, um, you know, that's different maybe, but it's not outrageous either. She's not doing it in sort of a way where she's trying to draw attention to herself. And then she ends up realizing that um, that's not really what it's cracked up to be anyway. And then 
yeah. you know, later on that turns into something else anyway. But but you've got me thinking that maybe that was the point is actually that they weren't meant to be outrageous. Mm-hmm. They were just meant to be normal. Uh, it could be. Like self-sufficient right? and independent, but normal. They weren't meant to be Elizabeth Bennett, you know? And each one is different in their own way, right? Like they're each pushing boundaries in, yeah. in different ways. Yeah. But not only that, the people who are in, sort of like the people who, um, I'm just thinking of the dads and the uncles, they're not really prohibiting the girl's independence. Like those girls are allowed to sort of be independent and find who they wish to find and are supported mm-hmm. by the their uncle and their father. They're supported to be that. In fact, I think that like Mary, like her dad, uh, when she's talking to her dad about... Uh, Fred, he's something about like, well, he wouldn't, if you're going to be somebody who doesn't work, my dad wouldn't like that anyway. Like you have yeah. to be somebody who works. You can't just be somebody who's out betting and right. um, losing all of your wealth to horses or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, th- that's a little bit different in that they're not being pushed to marry into a particular place they actually are choosing who it is that they marry yeah. which is very different very different and you've got me thinking now the balls are rolling that maybe these critics are correct that this is meant to be in support of women getting the vote because the men in the novel are not actively fighting against that right and even the men in the novel that are involved in politics like mr brooke and will who eventually becomes an mp Mr. Brooks says that he's he's committed to reform, even though he is a member of the gentry. So they are very, very liberal and very like progressive in their thinking, which would which is reflected in the way that the women can behave. But then and this is also going to ruin the end of the novel. So I don't know if I should talk about it yet. Yeah, go for it. Go for it. Do it. <laughs> OK. Spoiler alert. Um, but when Casabon dies... Woohoo! So happy about that. I hated, oh, thank God. <laughs> hated Casabon. He was awful. Anyway, I felt so sorry for Dorothea, that whole marriage. Anyway, so he dies, puts in some petty thing in his will about the fact that if Dorothea marries Will Ladslaw, which he thought was going to happen. Ladislaw? Ladislaw? Yeah. Ladislaw. I have no yeah. idea. Ladislaw? Anyway, so um, if Dorothea marries Will then she can't inherit his land and his money, whatever, whatever. Is that, you know, we can say that the men in this novel are very progressive in terms of yes. their, their liberal politics and the fact that they support the women in their lives. But then when Dorothea chooses to marry Will at the end and give up her estate and her money, they all like throw their hands up and, and complain. Like Fred is awful. Fred is so nasty. And he sits with... um with Dorothea's sister and says, you know, like she's, I can't believe she's doing this. We must put a stop to it. Like trying to be that like ultra masculine, yeah. I have control over her life, which then completely contradicts what how they were behaving, you know? Well, just him. I mean, it's not necessarily, I don't think Fred is maybe that progressive. I think it's actually Mary's father. Not Fred, whom, sorry, I didn't mean Fred. Who? Who's... Are you talking about the, the, the brother-in-law? Yes, what's his name? Uh, Lord Chatham or Lord Lord something James Chatham, Chatham? the Chatham yes. guy yes. there's Lord James see right? this bloody novel there's too many people yeah but that's the reason is because he wants to have the cash too oh. it's not because it's not because he cares really if for her or her choices it's because if she keeps the cash well he's gonna get oh. it he's a guy also I feel like he's a little petty because yes. he wanted to marry yeah. her in of the course. beginning oh, oh that's yes. that guy and sorry. for the sister sorry. that's right he wanted to marry her that's right but you see we're, we're like tr- we're trying to talk about it but we're all like wait who's who and what happened and where did this happen like that's why because she doesn't ever pick him yeah she's he's salty yeah. he's like waiting and waiting and waiting that is true yeah that's why yeah. I didn't realize I forgotten that's who he was sorry I also yeah while we're talking about getting confused with characters um so I read this article by Penguin Penguin basically wrote about the books that people were returning to during the lockdown and they said the, that a lot of people were picking up like the doorstopper books doorstopper books and yeah <laughs> right and then Middlemarch was obviously in that list um and they were just kind of theorizing. It's a doorstop opera. Yeah, they were just theorizing why people <laughs> were picking up the longest books in lit. Um, but it's too long. This is, it's too long. I started reading this book like over two months ago and it still took me up until two weeks ago to finish it. And I was reading it a lot. It's like, it's a 
very long book. And not a lot of action. Like, not a lot is happening. It's very, like, theory. And... Right, so this is also my thing with George Eliot. Is that even with Adam Bede, the first, like, 200 pages, I was like, oh, snore, this is so boring. And then all of a sudden it kicks off and I'm like, oh my god, I can't put it down. And I didn't put it down until I finished it. Whereas with Middlemarch, it was like pockets of drama. Like, it's really slow and la la la. And then something happens and then it's really slow and then it gets exciting again. It's like the pace is quite odd. So I found it really hard to keep engaged with it because it kept going from being really interesting to really boring. Okay, but again, that's realism, right? Life moves along. It's very Mm. boring. And then something happens. And then something's boring. And then, you know, oh, my God, we, like, got to go, you know, I don't know, out. Because we can't. I don't know. Like, it is um, it is very much like the pace of real life where things are very slow and methodical. And then something exciting happens. Although I think it, it, I think it would have been better if she had split it and kept it into the two rather than fusing them together. Um, because it would have been easier to keep the the people apart it would have been easier to keep all the characters sort of like these these are these characters and these are these characters i think it would have been easier well even when it was first published it was published in eight installments in a magazine or a journal or whatever um so that would have been so much easier to follow when you know you've got eight separate chapters and also it was published like over the course of a whole year so it's that long that it had to be published over a whole year you know Uh, well it makes more sense that that was um that that's why it's like that rather than just having the two stories i don't know i feel like that almost would have been worse for me because i'd have been like i don't remember what happened last time i read this that's true now i have to catch up yeah i mean look i read i read it but there were a lot of chapters that i had to go read a summary of because I couldn't, I just didn't understand what was happening, especially when it came not necessarily to like the political stuff, but the drama with Will's family and like the random character that gets introduced. And then that whole thing about Lydgate and the alcoholic that dies and then everyone thinks that Lydgate's a murderer. And it was just all so weird and so like out of the blue that I was like, wait, where did this did this character come from? Let me, like Mr. Bulstrode and I had to go back and figure out who he was. Like, so only in doing the research also about the context of the book did I even pick up that that was what the book was really about because I was so preoccupied with trying to figure out who the bloody characters were and what was going on that I didn't even notice things about then they mentioned that the king had died or the MP had changed or or sorry the prime minister had changed or even the liberal reform bill like I just didn't even pick up on it for ages because I was so like trying to keep notes of who's who and where's this and that yeah um the other big contextual thing about the novel is the whole role of religion which again I just like hardly picked up on until I'd gone back and read certain bits about you know the um well Hannah I mean do you know more about this that's a good question do I know about it I'm not sure I did try to read a bit Mostly, I well, I mean, George Eliot had her own, as you talked about earlier, Grace, like her own troubles with religion and like her own beliefs about what she really thought about it or how she practiced it. But mostly what I was reading, most articles were in agreement that the particular religion in this novel is not important. Like if they're talking Anglicanism, Catholicism, like Methodism, it's not as important as, as it is in, say, Adam Bede. It's more about the way in which uh, spiritual life is intertwined in, like, the normal everyday life. So it's not so much, like, organized, institutionalized religion, but, like, how does how does it affect an individual, if that makes sense? Well, that's, like, exactly what these religious dissenters were when George Eliot was right. growing up. Those That was exactly that. Which is interesting, actually. Maybe she was more leaning towards that way of thinking about religion and maybe that's why she wasn't allowed to be buried in Westminster Abbey I actually don't know I my personal opinion would be that she I think she was probably a very spiritual person but against institutionalized religion mm-hmm. because all of her novels well I mean I've read two so <laughs> both of her novels that I've read are very focused on religion as like this thread throughout it but if she herself was not religious like why would you do that if you're not at least interested in it, you know, like yeah, agreed. But isn't that the difference um, in the aftermath of um, the Church of England being formed? Right, is the differences that the that England uh, or that Britain actually and in America they're working out of what does it mean to be Protestant? What does it mean to be Catholic? 
what is like the Church of England? Like, what is it that those mean? And if you're Protestant, you're actually reading things, interpreting them for yourselves rather than having it institutionalized and somebody telling you what to think about it. So then religion does become something or your own spirituality does become something individual and is not something that you're like having to go to for somebody else telling you what to do. So George Eliot is, I would uh, agree with you, Hannah, that she's a very spiritual person and she's working that out on her own terms and doesn't, um, she cares because of her upbringing and her dad and, you know, like that she cares that she wants to conform to, you know, what her opinions are of other people, but she's also more about what it is that she thinks and how she's interpreting life and how she's living life. I mean, if you love somebody, you love them and, mm. Uh, like when she, you know, is with the married man, just um, she's sort of spiritual, but also living life on her own terms, which I think is everything that you just said, Hannah, about how she uh, sort of like interlaces religion within the daily life of people, which again is realism. That's actually how people live their life right. with whatever religion they are, is they have to work it out in their own lives every single day. Um, maybe they show up to church on Sunday, maybe they don't, but that's how it really <laughs> has to play out. Yeah, Michelle, can you can you tell us a bit more about the realism, about how Eliot was supposedly responsible for creating the realist genre? Well, just instead of writing, um, so I did this, I wrote this in a paper, so I didn't look at it recently, but um, just as far as creating the whole genre of realism is um, everything before that was sort of romantic and ideal and this is how things should look and this is how we want them to look and she is very much um about writing things the way that they happen like what really like you, you know people aren't always beautiful like in her own life where you told us grace right that her her father thought she was not a conventionally pretty woman and so she had to work on her brains um that's unfortunately something Oh, I hate that I'm going to say this, but we would kind of have to think about that now, right? Okay, so um, how are we going to build ourselves up as people? Like, if we're if we don't have these particular attributes, we're going to have to work on other things, and that's reality because that's how are you going to work in the real world? How is it going to work for you? Mm. Just everything that she wrote is like that. Um, I remember in Adam B. just her descriptions of people. Um, and, and in this book, just the descriptions of people and sort of the dullness of the day and how people really aren't that exciting and maybe they aren't really that beautiful <laughs> and they really aren't riding the beautiful horses and people get sick and people die and everything is mundane. It's not just one exciting ball and meeting, you know, just um, anyway, just it's not life is not just about like romantic excitement. That's not reality. And so for her to write about really what's going on in life is how she creates realism as a genre. Um, she's the first person to to do that. And then actually men follow her after that. Um, yeah, well, you just made me think about like, I, I don't know, I guess I just never considered that she could have been the first because I feel like she's so late in the century. But I guess Adam Bede came out in 1859, you know, it's smack bang in the middle. But you just made me think about like Tess. But he wrote oh, after Tess. her. He wrote after her, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Oh, bloody Tess. Um, yeah, he's he's 1891. So he's he's quite a while after her. But I, I associate realism with the first thing that I think of is Tess because it's so depressing right. and so awful, but actually follows a very similar trajectory to Adam Bede. Correct. Yeah. In terms of, again, the, the reality of women that have to undergo trauma at the hands of men and the consequences of that are really, really sad and really awful. And I guess that's the one thing that Middlemarch doesn't have for me is that it doesn't have anything that is heartbreakingly sad. Nothing in this book made me go, oh my gosh, that's really awful. I just, it was all just either I connected with it a lot and I, I really understood the feelings of the characters and I, I was very happy or kind of just like content about their outcomes, but nothing made me go, oh God, that's so right. awful. Okay, this is going to be an awful comparison, but I'm going to do it. All right. So when I read, when I read Middlemarch, um, I think in the beginning of Dorothea, it reminds me of the Eagles song, Lion Eyes, right? Where the girl is married to the old man and then she goes off and meets the younger man. So I was thinking of the Eagles song <laughs> yeah. when I was reading that. 
but I'm also, okay, late on the scene, right? But I'm watching Gilmore Girls. And I was thinking, like, I've constantly. I've never seen Gilmore right? Girls. Oh, my gosh, Grace. You must watch it. <laughs> oh, my God. But prepare until you lose chunks of time in your life. But um, anyway, so I felt like Middlemarch and Gilmore Girls, if there wasn't, Lorelai is obviously this very dynamic female character. But if you didn't have her in there, Middlemarch and Gilmore Girls were sort of similar because it's like all these people's lives and their marriage and it's mundane and who's walking down the street and something like one little thing will happen. But really, it's just the everydayness of life and and that is what george Eliot is is credited for creating um right. so, and she's writing it sort of in response she actually writes a, um, a a critique called silly novels written by silly women or silly female novelists i think something like that the title anyway and she's responding to all of the novels that are being written in the first part of the 19th century the first part of the 1800s where all of the, the female characters are always going to marry sort of like the Lord that has the money and they're going to balls and they're eating cake and, um, you know, everybody's wearing like these beautiful dresses and they have the beautiful countryside. I mean, who really lives like that? Um, <laughs> I don't know anyone and obviously not in America, but even in England, I don't know anyone who really lives that way. I mean, they're really no just trying to get did, through. And no one no. does. <laughs> well, they're just trying to get through the everything. I have mixed feelings about that article. You'd, well, well, I think that's maybe our next episode, but I have quite a bit to say about that. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. And, and where it goes back to. So basically, just so everyone knows, next episode, because there's so much context to this book, we thought we'd deal with a lot of the contextual issues in this first episode. And then next episode, we want to talk about feminism, female writing, and what Elliot either brings or does not bring to that whole canon. Because we can talk about that for hours. Oh my goodness. Hours that's and like hours. A whole we can. Day. Well, and it is... Oh my God. I mean, it is exactly what she's writing in response to that. So her realism is in response to what she was reading right. before. And so that's a whole other thing that we'll just yeah. have to talk well, about. Well, okay. Later. Instead of talking about the women, let's talk a bit about the men in this novel. Again, and I don't, I, I didn't do any research about it. I don't know what her intention was with the variety of men that she's creating. We've obviously already said about um, them being quite supportive of the women. But let's talk about Casabon and Will. I just really want to talk about this whole love triangle oh because God. I just, like, that really, <laughs> that was a good part of the book. That was the only part of the book that I was like, I cannot put this down. Right, I agree. As soon I as Dorothy is in Rome and she's in that art gallery and then Will walks in, I was like, oh, here we go. Okay. <laughs> Yay, right? You're like, oh, it's going to yeah. pick up. Yay. <laughs> I mean, Tom's like, oh, thank God. Because it's someone who's like actually wants to listen to her talk and like hear her opinions on things. <laughs> well, and not only that, but he's looking at, he's like, why are you with the old guy? <laughs> like, right? Yeah. And I feel so, that was the one thing that did break my heart, actually. I said nothing that really upset me. But the one thing that did really upset me is Will's unrequited love when he's like in the church and he sees her and then he gets really sad and he's like oh I need to go discover myself and become a better person for her and it just made me think so much of like oh your first love like when you're a teenager or you know early 20s or whatever whatever age you are usually like at university and you like first like proper love and you're like okay I need to do this I need to that and they will love me they will love me and obviously they're never going to <laughs> but I just felt so sorry for him I was reading that thinking oh you poor boy yeah. that is so sweet and that part where he like gets caught with Rosamond and Dorothea walks in oh Scandalous. okay I have a lot of thoughts about this too because and this again will kind of play into the next episode but we're here and I want to talk about it so obviously ridiculous situation that Dorothea walks into the room and Will and Rosamond are holding hands because Rosamond is upset because she's suffered a miscarriage and um, her relationship with uh, Lydgate isn't going very well. Dorothea walks in, they're holding hands. They obviously like jump apart and Dorothea runs out of the room and it's very dramatic and they think, oh God, this is it. Our reputation's ruined. This is the end of our, our lives. Now people think that we're having an affair all this stuff and Dorothea is obviously very upset because she is in love with 
Will. She loves Will. She's so in love yes. with Will, she just doesn't realize it. And also, shame girl, we've all been there. I totally understand. I totally sympathize. So she goes home and she's crying and then she wakes up and she's like, okay, no, I'm going to... I'm going to talk to Rosamond and I'm going to deal with this. And I just want to find this quote because nothing in this book resonated more than this this section where she wakes up and she goes, okay, I'm going to talk to Rosamond and deal with this and not hold a grudge and deal with my feelings for Will. So she says, and this is really late that I'm reading this out, but I loved it so much. No, love. So, She had enveloped both Will and Rosamond in her burning scorn, and it seemed to her as if Rosamond were burned out of her sight forever. But that base prompting, which makes a woman more cruel to a rival than to a faithless lover, could have no strength of recurrence in Dorothea. So this is so relevant to contemporary feminism and women supporting women, and it's ridiculous that that this is in a novel from the 1800s, and I've never found anything that has related more to contemporary feminism than this section because it's her going as we all are trying to do in a cheating scandal obviously this isn't but we'll let them have their drama it's never the woman's fault if they don't know and I really liked the fact that she was the bigger person and was like I'm not going to blame the woman for for not knowing and doing something that wasn't necessarily her fault like and it just made me think about when I was like this is a terrible story and I can't believe I'm going to tell it but when I was 18 I really fancied this guy like as I said first year of uni I just really relate to this novel and um I heard that this girl had kissed him so I decided instantly that I hated her even though I didn't know her and it got back to her and she came up to me one night and she was like why do you hate me like what is wrong with you like you're an absolute psycho um and (laughs) and now we've been best friends for seven years (laughs) So I just really, I love that. I love that Elliot was thinking that way all this time ago, that she was thinking about the male-female dynamics in that situation. I loved it. And why do we do that? We always like, you're like looking at the girl, blaming the girl rather than the the man who's being the two-timer, right? The man who's doing the two-timing. But you know what that scene reminds me of is, this is so bad. I'm so sorry, because I just see so much reflection to Jane Austen and then, of course, to Mary Wollstonecraft, which we'll talk about later. But if you, I just remember the scene in uh, Sense and Sensibility where Hugh Grant, um, right? They, they think, that, is he Edward? And they're married, you know, he's supposed to be, he's engaged to this the, uh, the other girl. And, um, and I can't think of the, is it Eleanor? Eleanor is just absolutely crushed, right? I can't think of what is the actress's name because it's not. It's you know who I'm talking I about. No oh, idea. who plays Eleanor? It's not Kate Winslet because she plays Marianne. No, no, it's, it's not, the other yeah, one. It's the other one. It's I can't. Why can I not think of her name? She's a great actress. I can't <laughs> like, think of her she's name. a very famous actor. She's so famous. She's so Wait, famous. She's she's yeah, Trelawney, isn't she's, she? Is she? Yes, she's Professor Trelawney. Oh, Emma Thompson. Emma Thompson. Emma Thompson. Can't Thank think you. of her name. Oh, guys, come on. <laughs> so Emma Thompson is just absolutely heartbroken, right? Um, and, you know, the Hugh Grant, Edward, that whole thing. And then when that sort of rectifies, and but that's a little bit different because it is the, the woman who's like the blah, blah, blah. But this guy, it sort of reminds me of sort of the innocence that's going around on that. Like, he just... Um, it just reminded me, Ladislaw looked like Hugh Grant and Emma Thompson sort of walking out, Eleanor walking out going, oh, well, I guess he's holding her hand now, right? Or whatever. It just made <laughs> yeah. me so sad because that's ex- the exact scene um, in yeah. Sense yeah. And Sensibility. But it just made me sad because it's that exact scene. It's like she drew it out of that or, you know, used it for this yeah. particular purpose. Only she phrased it different because it wasn't the girl's fault. Where in, sens- in sensibility, it is the girl's I fault. I mean, look, I don't I don't like Rosamond. I don't think she's a good character. I think she's selfish and, and indulgent and, and immature. Um, but that scene I just loved. I just, I just, I loved it. I loved it. That that's I mean I didn't enjoy I didn't love the book but I love that scene. <laughs> Will was quite good in that scene as well though because he's like I've ruined everything now she hates me because she thinks I'm this awful person and she he's like I'm just gonna leave town right like that's when yeah. he decides to leave. Oh, I hate that. Why do men just always like leave? Like that's their answer. <laughs> God, my answer to everything. <laughs> oh, I fucked up. I'm out of here. See ya. <laughs> run, 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 run. <laughs> but he um. 
he's he's just sort of trying to do everything to better himself for her and it's very sweet like their whole love story regardless of the complexity of her being married and and having and being a widow their love story is so sweet it's so cute whereas i find lydgate um lydgate and rosamond is is a bit complicated it's very um lydgate is very I found him like very hyper masculine. He actually reminded me a lot of Frankenstein in the first section where he's coming into Middlemarch and he wants to revolutionize science and, you know, like change the face of the scientific community and yes. make these huge discoveries. And I I didn't enjoy that partnership as as much because I feel like they were in it for alternative means, not so much that they were like pure and in love. Agreed. I mean I think he's he has his own agenda. He's like trying to, he wants to, uh, uh, but in that, this relates back to something that you said before, Grace, which is, um, I think uh, that George Eliot is showing us all different kinds of men. Yeah. Like she's showing men in different, like, so here's, you know, here's this man who is the sort of, I'm going to come in and I'm the position and I'm going to change this, but he's not, um, he's not going to be the same as a Lord, right? He's not going to be the same uh, class as a Lord who, or the, um, Mary's dad, who is the worker, right? She shows sort of all these different classes of men, which is really interesting because for the first time, she's actually characterizing men and there's just as many to choose from as there are, maybe there's even more than women in the novel, which is not usually the case, right? It's usually the other mm-hmm. way around. There's only one man that everybody's after and not not the other way around. So she gives us sort of yeah, this like smorgasbord of men um, and we can kind of go, oh, Right. Yeah, we like and eligible men that are that you're meant to be fancying almost as you read. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and do we like this one? Do we like this one? He's a doctor, but he's really full of himself, and and this is what he wishes to do. <laughs> right. And then you've got hypermasculine James Chatham right. or whatever yeah. his name is, and then you've oh. got very sweet Mister Brooke, the uncle, who's like a little. I picture him being like a Santa Claus, like. So you're right. She does give us such a spectrum and. And not only really is she unusual. giving us, yeah, totally. And I guess that's where the credit is due to Middlemarch is that not only is she giving us a spectrum of women and a spectrum of men, but a spectrum of marriage and what marriages right. can look like in different capacities. And I think this is a very good end to this episode because we can pick up next week discussing the marriage plot, what the marriage plot how significant the marriage plot is. Hannah knows all the things and I can't wait to hear what you have to say. We're going to let loose. Um, So yeah, let's end that there. And I'm really excited to keep talking about it. But um, thanks for listening, everyone. Again, if you want to keep in touch with us, um, find us on Instagram at the Book Bosom Podcast or go to our website, bookbosompodcast.wordpress.com. Um, we're always keen to chat to you guys and yeah hope that you'll tune in for our part two of middlemarch yeah bye, bye.